Hi everybody, this is Raj. This is Ashwin. Welcome to the next episode of Blood Cancer Talks podcast. So this is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease. And our goal is to focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Today, we are excited to talk about the management of newly diagnosed chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL. As you all know, CLL has been an exciting space in the past decade with many advances and almost a complete change in paradigm from cytotoxic chemotherapy to oral targeted agents for most patients, and also accompanied with a significant improvement in survival. We have an expert, Dr. Nitin Jain, who is an associate professor in the Department of Leukemia at MD Anderson Cancer Center. So let's start with some quick introductions. Uh, Dr. Jan, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what your clinical and research focus is at MD Anderson? Sure. I mean, just delighted to be here. And thank you, Raj and Ashwin, for the kind invitation uh, to this very nice forum. So looking forward to the discussion today. Yeah, so I've been at MD Anderson now faculty just over 10 years. Uh, I'm associate professor in the Department of Leukemia. Uh, I'm a clinician. I see uh, patients in the clinic uh, two full days a week. Uh, and the rest of the time I spend on research, uh, largely doing phase one, phase two clinical trials uh, in CLL, uh, also ALL, and also I'm the director of the CAR-T program for leukemia groups, so kind of focusing on developing CAR-Ts for, for both uh, ALL and CLL. So that's kind of what my time is spent these days. All right, yeah, you definitely wear a lot of different hats. Uh, so we'll jump right in and we'll start with the case. So 65-year-old male with a known history of CLL, you know, was being followed in the community with, for, with watchful waiting. Um, he had a clonal B lymphocyte count of around 50,000 at diagnosis. However, the lymphocytosis has progressed over the past year with newly worsening anemia and thrombocytopenia. And now the hemoglobin is nine. And let's say the platelet is around 80,000, along with some constitutional symptoms. And he's now referred to you for second opinion regarding uh, whether to initiate treatment and if yes, uh, what regimen. So we'll, we'll we'll focus on this case as we go, you know, more into the questions. But first of all, for the audience, you know, how do we distinguish between uh, CLL, you know, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, MBL or monoclonal B cell lymphocytosis and, and SLL or small lymphocytic lymphoma? If you could give us like a 10,000 foot view on these three terms and how we distinguish between them in the clinic. Sure, yeah. So I think this, and to be honest with you, this comes up quite often, mostly from the patients because... Sometimes they go to one doctor and they say, oh, you have CLL. And they go to another one, they say, we actually have SLL. And then they're like, do I have a lymphoma or do I have a leukemia? What's going on? So I think this is you know, actually not so uncommon of a scenario. So I think one thing to say would be that from a management standpoint, you know, we use CLL and SLL as interchangeable terms. Most clinical trials, uh, randomized studies, large studies in CLL include SLL as well. So so for me, they kind of represent the same disease. On a big picture view, obviously, SLL is more lymphoma, so lymphoma-based disease. CLL is more uh, leukemia. I mean, so uh, white, you know, white count is elevated, like the blood-based disease. But obviously, there are definitive criteria. So if you have a patient who has a white count, or we should say absolute lymphocyte count, uh, or in a strict sense, the clonal B lymphocyte count, you know, more than 5,000, uh, that's SLL, that's CLL. If you have cytopenias, that's CLL. If your clonal B lymphocyte count is less than 5,000 and you have no lymph nodes, then that's uh, MBL, monoclonal B lymphocytosis. So monoclonal B lymphocytosis is really a diagnosis where your white count is normal practically, 
Lymphocyte count is less than 5,000. You have no cytopenias. You have no lymph nodes. So these are the patients who get, I guess, somewhat accidentally diagnosed. Uh, maybe they had one time a slightly elevated percentage lymphocytos. Percentage lymphocytes were slightly elevated. Uh, and the doctor ran a peripheral blood flow and they picked up some clone of CLL or, you know, these clonal cells. And that would be called as MBL. So, so if you are in the MBL category, your white count is less than 5,000, but you have lymph nodes, then that's called SLL. So I think, uh, you know, so you can easily dif differentiate between these two, I guess, based on these. Obviously, these are not hard and set categories, meaning that you have a diagnosis of SLL, and then six months later, you see the patient, the white count now is picked up to 14,000, and the lymphocyte count has not ticked up to 8,000. So now it's CLL. So, you know, so... So I tell my patients to not worry too much because we manage them the same way. They're interchangeable terms. And many times I just use CLL, just kind of explaining to them in an in a easy term. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Chen, for that uh, excellent introduction and uh, distinguishing between these uh, three different entities, which are closely related, but you know, subtle uh, differences. Um, so the next question is like, when do you first see a patient with CLL in whom you are you know, planning to initiate treatment? What workup do you typically order? Yeah, so it depends on if a patient comes to you who you think needs treatment versus who you treat, who you think doesn't need treatment. So if this patient were to come, to, had come to me like six months ago, whenever he was originally diagnosed, when clearly based on the blood counts, based on looking at the patient's symptoms, physical examination, I'm really not thinking this patient needs treatment. So these are you know, early stage patients. For those patients, you can easily diagnose them for CLL diagnosis by doing a peripheral blood flow cytometry. And there's no reason to do a bone marrow. Peripheral blood, you can also run prognostic markers. There's a bit of a debate uh, sometimes in whether you need to do prognostic markers right at baseline, like at the time of new diagnosis, or should you do them when the patient actually needs treatment? In my practice, we just end up doing them the first time they walk into the Anderson, just by kind of how our structure is set up. Um, and I think some of those information is helpful to know because if I know my patient has deletion 17P or TP53 mutation, those patients I know tend to progress faster. Those patients I know have a more, you know, uh, may have a more troublesome course to say kind of later on. And also prognostic markers such as IGHV mutation status, which is actually an important prognostic marker. And I think it's important to recognize that that particular marker does not change for an individual patient lifespan. So you need to check it only one time. So whether you check it at the time of diagnosis or you check it three years later when the patient needs treatment, it doesn't change. So you just need to check it one time. So we just happen to check the prognostic markers when they come walk into the door at the time of first visit to MD Anderson. So, but but again, certainly important point to say here is that they, they must be checked before you need to start treatment for the patient. Now, just to kind of completing that discussion, now if a patient comes to me and what, what you're describing to me, they're thrombocytopenic, they're anemic, they have symptoms, they have lymph nodes, I know this patient needs treatment. Uh, so for that patient, uh, and that's coming for the first time to MD Anderson, I would go ahead and do a bone marrow to get an accurate assessment of the disease and diagnosis. And I'll also do a CT scans to image them to for tumor burden uh, because as I'm planning to start the treatment. 
So the CT scans and bone marrow are reserved when you are actually starting the treatment. But for early stage patients, I, I don't do those tests. Got it. Thank you. Um, one other, I think, uh, important question for uh, fellows who are uh, listening to this podcast is, you know, what are the indications of treatment for CLL? This is a very common, because not every patient needs treatment. Uh, like you said, uh, one of the important point is cytopenias, like you were alluding earlier. Are there any other indications apart from cytopenias that um, you need to treat a patient with CLL? So if you look at the IWC treatment criteria, you know, they list seven or eight criteria for treatment for CLL patients. But from a practical standpoint, I think, in my opinion, there are only three. Cytopenia certainly uh, one criteria. So, you know, anemia or thrombocytopenia. Uh, secondly is progressive adenopathy. You know, um, the criteria suggest that it should be more than 10 centimeter. I personally think that 10 centimeter is a huge, big lymph node. And I think I, you know, I think if they're above five centimeter and they're growing and there are some other factors which are playing in, like their hemoglobin is dropping a bit, their platelet is coming down a bit, I'm thinking about treatment for that patient. Uh, and the third major uh, would be symptom symptoms, disease-related symptoms, you know. And now I would say that most of the time the disease-related symptoms are associated with some other objective measurement of disease worsening. For example, lymph nodes are worsening, the cytopenias are developing. Now, there, there are patients who have significant amount of symptoms, which is somewhat not reflected in these other objective measurements we talked about. And then that becomes a bit of a discussion that you, you have to really have to figure out what those symptoms are coming from and is it really CLL? Um, I had a patient who came and had a TSH of 70, 70. And it was he was hypothyroid and it was undiagnosed. Uh, another patient had low testosterone. Another patient had obstructive sleep apnea, which was undiagnosed. And actually, when he started using CPAP, his, all his symptoms improved. So, in those situations, you really have to do a thorough, so-called you know primary care kind of workup to try to figure out what else could be going on uh, before you start treating them based on symptoms alone. I think an important point maybe for the trainees who may be listening is is this lymphocyte doubling time. You know, I think that comes up quite often. And patients, because, you know, they track this, right? They track their white count and they, oh, my white count was now 15. Now it's 25. So actually it's kind of maybe doubling, you know, and should I be starting treatment? I personally do not treat based on lymphocyte doubling time alone. I think, you know, obviously the white one is approaching 300,000 or something like, you know, very high numbers you may consider treatment if it is rising rapidly. But if someone going from, you know, 25,000 to 50,000 uh, in six months, but they are absolutely otherwise okay, I tend to watch those patients because sometimes this doubling time, it doubles one time, and then you see them in six, six months, it may not double, it may just go from 50 to like 60 or 70. So there are, it's not a linear curve that you can just plot very nicely. So I tend to wait until there are other objective evidence of disease worsening, I see. So I think, and also I think at low white count, it doesn't really matter. So if someone goes from 10,000 white count to 20,000 white count, am I going to start treating them based on lymphocyte doubling time of six months? No, we should not be doing that. So I think there are these nuances involved in terms of uh, the white count. And I think it's important because patients really get worried about this white count doubling um, 
many times. Another important thing we see in the clinical practice is association of uh, autoimmune cytopenias with CLL. So whenever you're following a patient with you know, watch and wait for new diagnosis of CLL and you see an, a new onset anemia, do you always rule out autoimmune causes of anemia or do you do a bone marrow biopsy to further evaluate? Yeah, so a very, a very important point, and I can tell you it's also a board question, <laughs> so the trainees are this thing. So if you have a patient who was fine, like rise to zero CLL, hemoglobin was 12, now they come to bed six months later and the hemoglobin is 8.5. So obviously the you should not really, assume, I mean, you should for sure not assume this is CLL, primarily CLL. So you have to go autoimmune hemolytic anemia, obviously, you know, look at the LDH, indirect bilirubin, haptoglobin, Coombs test. Um, I had a recent patient with an acute parovirus infection and the hemoglobin dropped to like five. So do for the you know, parovirus testing as well if there's an acute significant drop. Uh, look for iron deficiency anemia, especially in older patients who may be losing iron. Again, I had a patient who had a early stage colon cancer resected uh, because of the anemia he presented with and a CLL diagnosis. So yeah, so I think Certainly evaluate for other causes. Don't just assume that this is CLL bone marrow infiltration causing autoimmune hemolytic, causing anemia. And once you have done that, I mean, I think if you do all this workup and you let's suppose there is no autoimmune hemolytic anemia, there's no iron deficiency, there's no other cause. In that situation, I would do a bone marrow to try to figure out why is this, uh, is this definitely a bone marrow involvement? And let's suppose you do bone marrow and it's 90 to 95% packed with CLL, then I'm really thinking that this is probably CLL-related anemia and I need to treat the CLL. Uh, versus if you have a 20-30% bone marrow involvement and then you can look for parovirus inclusion or other factors which you may think of maybe other causes which could be causing it. And I think the important point is that if you diagnose a patient with immune hemolytic anemia, I think the treatment certainly is a bit different, right? You do the steroids, you can do the rituximab, sometimes IVIG. So you don't need to really treat CLL per se. You know, you treat them as an immune hemolytic anemia. And these patients may achieve a remission for that immune hemolytic anemia for quite some time. And so you don't need to start them on like a BTK inhibitor right away or, you know, or venetoclax because you want to treat the CLL. You treat the immune component and then just watch and wait. That's good. Um, so, you know, going next to the risk stratification, you've already mentioned a little bit before regarding risk stratification. Like, you know, how do you risk stratify a patient, you know, once you are planning to start treatment? And do you think the older staging systems like the RISE staging or Binet staging, do they still have a role in the era of cytogenetics and NGS in risk stratification? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I think obviously in the United States, we generally use right classification, you know, so just for the audience, right classification goes from zero to four. Zero is lymphocytosis, uh, one is lymph nodes, two is a large liver or spleen, three is anemia, and four is thrombocytopenia. I think how that helps in a way is, you know, obviously if someone is right stage three and four, meaning that they have anemia and thrombocytopenia, then those are the patients you really should be thinking of treatment. Also patients who are right stage two or one or two, sorry, with significant adenopathy or significant hepatosplenomegaly, um, you know, those are the patients you will be thinking. But if someone is right stage zero, that's a patient most likely will not be treating, you know, for that patient. So I guess from a clinical 
practice, only in, the, in terms of the clinical trial reporting, we have to document the right stage classification. From a day-to-day -day work, I think if, if a fellow is presenting a case to me and they say patient is right stage zero CLL with no symptoms, then I'm thinking this is a patient who, I just get the picture, right, in my mind. Okay, this is a patient who really has no cytopenias, no lymph nodes, has no symptoms. Uh, right stage zero just reflects that. And uh, I just need to watch, be watching this patient. But I think generally, was we don't say our oh, patient is a right stage four CLL, I think in our practice, we just think of what is the objective, what is anemia, what is the hemoglobin, what is the thrombocytopenia, and let's address that. Um, and you raise a very important point. I mean, right stage classification, as any of you know, was developed by Dr. Kanti Rai back in 1975. This is long before we know about uh, the fish analysis or mutation analysis or uh, probably conventional cytogenetics. So, so those things are not included in this. So this is a more clinical classification. And certainly these days we have these very many molecular subtypes of CLL, importantly the FISH test, P53 mutation test, and IGHV mutation test, which certainly, as I mentioned before, should be done for patients because it can also help us, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it, um, help us decide treatment for an individual patient. Sounds good. And other than these, you know, cytogenetics and NGS, do you routinely use other prognostic markers like ZAP70 or CD38 status or beta 2 microglobulin? Like, do you typically order them at baseline? Yeah, so, you know, ZAP70 and CD38 have really lost, I would say, prognostic significance. So as a background, you may know these were originally developed as a surrogate for IGHV mutation test. So when the IGHV mutation test was came about in year 2000, uh, it was very difficult to do it at that time, the sequencing. And in some of the early analysis, it was no, it was shown that patients who are IGHV unmutated, the ZAP70 was the most expressed gene on a gene expression profile. And similar was the case with CD38. So they were developed as surrogates for IGHV testing at the very beginning. Certainly now we do IGHV testing you know, routinely, right? So I think we really... Again, from clinical trial reporting purposes, we, we, we check them for clinical trial, but as a routine case, on a routine, we don't really use much. Uh, beta-2 microglobulin has some relevance, I guess, in terms of prognostication. We do check it as a standard for our patients who come in, but again, whether that's going to affect my treatment decision, not really. So I think those have somewhat lost prognostic significance in the new era, I would say. Thank you, Dr. Jain. Um, now, um, moving on to treatment. Um, once you have the complete workup, including cytogenetics and mutation status available, can you walk us through your thought process on how you pick the optimal treatment regimen for a previously untreated patient? Yeah, so, you know, I think this is a very obviously important yeah. point, right? How to pick the new treatment. So, so, first of all, I would say that, you know, historically, um, up until a few years ago, you know, chemotherapy was really the thing which we were using, right, for newly diagnosed patients. Um, as you may recall, FCR, bendamustine rituximab, and then chloramicil-based regimens were the kind of go-to drugs back, like, you know, five, ten years ago. And lots of efforts were done at that time by U.S. cooperative group, German serial study group, MD Anderson group, how to optimize chemotherapy. You know, so uh, we obviously Dr. Keating here at MD Anderson developed the FCR regimen. And then there were several iterations of the FCR regimen being developed. Uh, FCR light was developed. Uh, Bendamustin was developed. PCR, which stands for pentostatin, cyclophosphamide rituximab was developed. Um, 
So, you know, there was a lot of effort, but then, you know, the target therapy era came about with the advent first of Ibrutinib. Now we have a Calabrutinib, we have Venetoclax, we have Obinituzumab. And then, so the Ibrutinib was first approved for CLL in February of 2014. So since that time, we are approaching now, you know, eight, nine year mark, things have really, really changed in how we manage them. So the chemotherapy era has gone away and now we are in the new era of target therapies. And here I would say that, you know, at least at MD Anderson, and I can tell you most CLL centers, at least in the United States, have stopped using chemotherapy completely for patients with CLL. So I'm not using chemotherapy at all. We right now have no clinical trials at MD Anderson for CLL patients which use chemotherapy. So, so the options in the frontline setting then are, but let me complete up, uh, I guess, a chemotherapy part one with one more point. If you do want to use chemotherapy, I think the group which has been shown to benefit the most are the young patients who are IGHV mutated who do not have deletion 17P or P53 mutation. So that's the group of patients where data from MD Anderson, our group here, had shown that there's a long-term progression-free survival of about 50 to 55% at 10-year mark, meaning that, and there's a plateau to the curve at that time, meaning that potentially these patients are cured after getting FCR. So that's the group of patients where you may think about, but you know, as I said, at least here, even at MD Anderson, because the new drugs are really very promising, and obviously there is no risk of MDS AML, which can occur as you know with use of chemoimmunotherapy such as FCR. Uh, we have moved away from chemotherapy for our patients. So in terms of the target therapies, right now there are three approved in the frontline setting. One is a brutinib. Then is a calabrutinib, which is a second-generation BTK inhibitor. And then is a combination of venetoclax plus obinutuzumab. Venetoclax is a BCL2 inhibitor, um, which is combined with obinutuzumab. So these are the three things which are approved. How do we decide between these three? So, you know, first of all, I think ibrutinib and calabrutinib are BTK inhibitors, and they are uh, very similar drugs, but... Uh, in a relapse setting, a trial showed that a calabrutinib is actually safer than a brutinib. So based on that, at least in my practice, uh, I have really changed my practice from a brutinib to a calabrutinib for new patients with CLL. If I'm going to use a BTK inhibitor, I'm using a calabrutinib as a preferred BTK inhibitor at this time. Um, uh, a calabrutinib, uh, you have to give daily, twice a day, and then you have to do it continuously for the rest of your life as long as it's working. So, Dr. Jain, just a you know, point yeah. for our listeners uh, before you can elaborate more about BTK inhibitors and venetoclax. When you are discussing um, uh, a patient who needs treatment for his CLL, his or her CLL, uh, do you, you know, present FCR as an option? Because a lot of the patients, you know, they prefer fixed duration treatment versus the BTK inhibitors, which are indefinite, like you were saying earlier, uh, for their entire life. Do you discuss FCR as an app option or you do not? Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, I do mention chemotherapy uh, as an option or as a more like a historical option so that they, they um, and many of the patients obviously are quite savvy. They have looked through the internet and many times they have discussed some of these options with their local oncologist before coming to us for a second opinion. And they may have mentioned sometimes bendamustin rituximab or something like that. So I do discuss just for a complete discussion sake that yes, up until recently we are using chemotherapy, FCR, BR, but 
Again, that's not something I would recommend to you. And then that, then I, you know, as you kind of rightly pointed out, the big difference between these agents, target agents, is time limited versus continuous, right? So that becomes a many times a major point because venetoclax or venetuzumab as a therapy is a one-year time limited therapy. So that's, I guess, a big advantage of that therapy, right? So when I'm telling the patients, you know, I tell them that you can do BTK inhibitor, which is a lifelong therapy. Uh, it's easy to initiate. You just take a pill, go home. It's much easier logistically, but you have to take it for a long, long time. On the flip side is venetoclax plus obinduzumab, which is a one-year therapy, but it does require some close monitoring for tumor lysis syndrome. So you have to come to the campus, you know, a bit often early on for dose escalation of venetoclax, for obinduzumab infusions. There's a higher risk of neutropenia with this regimen. So again, it requires a bit more close monitoring. But the good part is that you'll be done in one year. And overall, you will achieve a higher depth of remission, being MRD negative remission is a much higher with venetoclaxobinituzumab as compared to practically none with the BTK inhibitors alone. So, so I give the, these patients two, two options or let them decide, you know. Um, and uh, there are patients who, um, many times patients who are in their late 70s, early 80s, they may say, you know, I'm just, I'm taking anyway so many pills and I just can take one extra pill and I don't have to come very often to the hospital. Uh, I don't want to have an IV infusion, so I'm good with that. On the flip side, most younger patients, I would say if a patient is in their 50s and 60s, um, they, they want to get it done with. They want to be, have a feeling that I'm done with the treatment. So they do it for one year and then they're happy that they're done. So most of the younger patients go for time-limited therapy and I'd say some older patients also prefer time limited therapy, but some, many of them, you know, go for um, uh, lifelong therapy with BTK because it's just the ease of initiation. Um, and I think one other point from the genetic standpoint is that if you have a patient with deletion 17P or P3 mutation, and that's why I was saying it's very important to check those. For those, the data suggests that BTK inhibitor therapy right now is um, better than a time-limited venetoclax or venetuzumab. So for those patients, I do tell them that, um, you know, obviously we have clinical trials here, but outside of a clinical trial, I would prefer a BTK inhibitor therapy for them. So that's that's another reason if you're in a clinical practice, uh, many times, you know, in a clinical practice, FISH test is done very routinely for patients with CLL. But what I see is that the P53 mutation analysis is many times missed. Um, when they are coming from a community oncology's practice or, or some other practice. Uh, so I think that is something which we should be doing more routinely for our patients with CLR. Sounds good. So I think we'll um, now dig a little bit deeper into the studies on the BTK inhibitors. And, you know, since that is one of the major frontline treatments, I think by now, most of us are very familiar with the initial ibrutinib trials, you know, like, for example, Resonate 2, which compared ibrutinib to chlorambucil, you know, was uh, obviously an inferior control arm, but definitely, you know, showed both PFS and OS benefit with ibrutinib over chlorambucil. Uh, can you, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about the key RCTs, you know, which compared ibrutinib against the current standard of care? For example, the Alliance trial uh, that was published by Dr. Voyage in NEJM. Um, of ibrutinib versus bendamustin rituximab and uh, the, the ECOG, the E1912 trial in younger patients, which compared ibrutinib versus FCR. Can you tell us a little bit about what those trials showed and, you know, compared to the current standard of care? 
Sure, yeah. So those are two major landmark trials done by the U.S. cooperative group. So as you mentioned, the first was done by the Alliance group led by Jennifer Royack. So what they showed was, what they did was, so this was a trial designed for older patients. So patients generally above 65 years of age, who were, they were randomized into three arms. One was bendamustine rituximab, one was ibrutinib rituximab, and then was ibrutinib alone. So three different arms. And so there were two major conclusions from the trial. One was that both the ibrutinib arms were superior to bendamustine arm, bendamustine rituximab arm for progression-free survival. So that's one. So target therapy is better than chemotherapy for PFS. And the second conclusion was that ibrutinib rituximab was no better than ibrutinib alone. So the curves were overlapping and the data was just updated, I believe at ASH last year or maybe at PHA ASCO this year. Um, and um, the curves are still overlapping. So, so that's one trial. So that really establishes, because as you mentioned, the ResNet trials, the comparator was chlorambus. So you could argue, oh, computer comparator, that's not good. We need a really a strong comparator. So there comes Alliance trial with the Bendamustrituximab comparator. And not to be outdone, the ECOG trial led by Tate Chanafel from Mayo Clinic designed a similar trial for younger patients where they used FCR as a comparator chemotherapy. And the control arm was actually only one, ibrutinib plus rituximab. They did not do an ibrutinib only control arm. So the trial was just two arms, FCR versus ibrutinib rituximab. And that trial uh, also showed that um, the ibrutinib rituximab arm was actually progression-free survival was superior. And surprisingly, overall survival was also superior for ibrutinib rituximab as compared to FCR. So really these two trials strongly favor the target therapies over chemoimmunotherapy for patients with CLL. And that's the reason what I mentioned to you before is that myself and many other CLL uh, physicians in the United States have moved away from chemoimmunotherapy you know, for these patients. So those are the two, I guess, major trials in the field of uh, CLL with the use of ibrutinib in the frontline setting. Sounds good. And, uh, you know, in when you're using ibrutinib or acalabrutinib in the clinic, uh, do you ever use rituximab with that or you typically use a single agent BTK inhibitor based on these? Yeah, you know, so the, this trial, which I mentioned, the Alliance trial, which showed that ibrutinib rituxin was similar to rituximab. And Jan Berger in our group did a trial in the RELAX CLL, where we also showed that ibrutinib rituximab was no better than ibrutinib alone. So, I think rituximab combination is really fallen out of favor, and I won't recommend that. Now, obinituzumab, which is another C20 antibody, is slightly different. And there we have a randomized data, which is the Elevate-TN study. So Elevate-TN study was a study for Akalabrutinib, where older patients with CLL were randomized to chlorambicil obinituzumab. So again, comparator is a bit inferior, but let's leave it that. But then there were two uh, experimental arms, one was a calabrutinib alone, and one was a calabrutinib plus obinituzumab. And what the investigators showed, and they updated the data at, uh, at oh, sorry, ASCO uh, 2022, is that acalaobin had about a 10 percentage point PFS advantage over acala alone at five years. So there is a PFS advantage of using obin with acala. Obviously, that comes at a cost of uh, more infusion reaction, more cytopenias, and obviously cost of the drug itself. So, so if you're going to combine uh, a CD20 antibody, um, so certainly obinituzumab would be the way to go 
And again, the, the most data we have, especially in the randomized setting, is with the color group nib. So in my practice, I would say I still use a color group nib single agent uh, because the reason a patient is not doing venetoclaxo venetuzumab and they're doing a color group nib is that they want ease of initiation. They don't want any IV infusions. And then if you say, oh, I'm going to still do IV infusion, they're like, okay, then why not I just do the venetoclaxo venetuzumab? But, but having said that, I think it's certainly a color urban, certainly an appropriate regimen. There is randomized data and it's on a label as well. The label of approval for a color brotenib is with and without obinutuzumab. One question, Dr. Jain, that you said obinutuzumab is different than rituximab. Is it difference in efficacy or the mechanism of action or is there anything else? So, I mean, as, as a broad mechanism of action, they are, you know, both CD20, CD20 targeting molecular antibodies. So, but as a more, if you go more deeply, obinutuzumab relies more on ADCC in terms of how it kind of works. There has been uh, data uh, previously in the chlorambucil era where chlorambucil uh, rituximab was compared to chlorambucil obinutuzumab versus chlorambucil alone. This was the so-called CL11 trial. And that trial had shown that chlorambucil obinutuzumab is the best among the three. It's better than chlorambucil rituximab, and that, that's why chlorambucil obinutuzumab became kind of the, the new standard of care for older patients before the coming along of ibrutinib. So more recently, uh, there was a trial which was actually presented by the German Cellular Study Group at ASH meeting and updated at, at EHA, where uh, it's called the CLL13 trial, where what they did was they randomized patients, frontline patients into chemotherapy, venetoclax rituximab, venetoclax obinutuzumab, and also a triplet arm of venetoclax obinutuzumab ibrutinib. So let's not go into the triplet arm right now, but so this is the first randomized trial in the frontline setting where we are comparing two antibodies head to head with venetoclax. So venetoclax rituxan versus venetoclax obinutuzumab. And what they showed was that venetoclax obinutuzumab led to higher rates of MRD negativity, and also the PFS actually appears to be better with venetoclax obinutuzumab versus venetoclax rituximab. So I think these two trials have really, you know, CLL11 with chemotherapy and then CLL13 with the use of venetoclax, I think have really established obinutuzumab as the go-to um, C-joint antibody uh, over rituximab for patients with CLL. I think before we go to BCL2 inhibitor, I just wanted to quickly touch upon the cardiac toxicities of BTK inhibitors. Um, you know, you must have seen there was recently a paper in blood on, uh, I think, ventricular arrhythmias with xanabrutinib. And uh, since these patients are on BTK inhibitors for lifelong, uh, you know, what, what is your thought regarding, you know, which, which, which BTK inhibitor is the safest from a cardiac standpoint? And also, you know, how do you monitor these patients, you know, especially in the real world when there is a concern that patients have a lot of comorbidities and, you know, possibility of having these cardiac arrhythmias? Yeah, so one thing to clarify, the paper you mentioned in the blood is actually for acalabrutinib uh, in, in a pooled analysis from, from Ohio State. So, um, yeah, so we know about cardiac toxicities with ibrutinib for a long time. And I think one thing to highlight is that these were actually not originally recognized. Because AFib obviously, you know, is a common medical issue in older patients, especially if they get admitted for some infection issues. So early on in the ibrutinib trials, patients were getting atrial fibrillation, but it was it was thought to be just a part of the disease, old age, and whatnot. 
But only several years later, uh, or a few years later, it became recognized that, oh no, actually this is a real signal of atrial fibrillation. And then there were also some sudden cardiac death, ventricular arrhythmias, which have been described with the Brutnet. So far, um, the cumulative data with Akala Brutnet in terms of the cardiac safety actually has been better or safer than a Brutnet. Um, the report from the one you described from Ohio State, where they did analysis for their patients with um, with Akala Brutnet, you know they they did also describe some ventricular arrhythmias uh, for that for that group of patients, which um, which I think we just need to maybe investigate a bit more in terms of uh, why that is because that seems a bit different than what has been reported so far with Akala Brutnet. Um, and Zanobrutnib is also, as far as I can say, uh, no, is that it's also more, is less cardiac toxicity overall than Ibrutnib. So I think the, I think in terms of the BTK choice, uh, because of the head-to-head -head randomized trials which have occurred in relapse setting, so there have been two trials, Ibrutnib versus Akalabrutnib and also Ibrutnib versus Zanobrutnib for CLL. And both of them showed that uh, the second generation BTK inhibitors, namely Akala and Zanu, were safer in terms of uh, cardiac toxicity, especially atrial fibrillation risk from Pidiprutinib. But having said that, so I think as I said before, I think right now Zanu Brutinib is not yet FDA approved for patients with CLL. So right now, the only second generation for CLL approved is Akala Brutinib, and that has become my preferred BTK inhibitor to use. But, but I think you have to be mindful of cardiac toxicity, which you, which you mentioned. I think you have to make sure uh, that the patients are, their blood pressure is okay. If they have any cardiac issues, they're following up with their cardiologist. Um, and I think you have to remind them about atrial fibrillation as a potential side effect of these drugs. Do you ever use ibrutinib at all right now? Or are you only using acalabrutinib? So I'm really using, for, for new patient starts, I'm really using a calibrating these days, yeah. All right. Now switching gears and digging a little bit deeper into BCL2 inhibitors, you know, which, like you were already saying, have revolutionized the treatment paradigm in CLL. Uh, first of all, for our audience, can you briefly touch upon a CLL-14 trial that led to the approval of Venetoclax plus Opinutuzumab as a frontline treatment for CLL patients. Sure, yeah. So venetoclax, just for everyone to know, is a BCL2 inhibitor. This drug has really revolutionized not just the CLL treatment, but also AML treatment, and it's being explored in many other subsets of diseases uh, as well. So, but for the CLL, um, the trial in the frontline setting which led to the approval was called CLL14. It was done by the German CLL study group where they randomized older patients with CLL into venetoclax venetuzumab versus crimbacillobenetuzumab. Uh, so again, the comparator there may be not be the best comparator, but was considered appropriate at the time when the trial was designed. But what that trial showed is that venetoclax venetuzumab certainly is a, after one year of therapy, when you stop the therapy, these patients are staying in remission for quite a while. So the five-year progression free survival was about 65%. So it's not that when you stop the therapy at one year, everyone was relapsing next day. So there is some you know, durable remissions achieved uh, for these patients. So that trial was just updated for the five-year update. And again, it's good to see that with the time of the therapy, we are able to see uh, a durable and a good 
progression-free survival. Obviously, patients are still continuing to relapse, and I don't think you can say that this is the cure for these patients, but they are able to achieve uh, a long treatment-free remission, you know, and then potentially at the time of relapse, you can use a BTK inhibitor or you can redo venetoclax-based therapy again for these patients after this prolonged time-limited interval. And uh, touching a little bit about toxicities of venetoclax, what do you explain to the patient? And uh, other thing is, do you always admit this patient when you are initiating treatment? Yeah, so in terms of the toxicity, the things I talk to them about are a couple of things. One is tumor lysis risk, which actually, you know, is more of a logistics risk, meaning that you have to get the patients, get their labs checked. But Really, 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 I would say patients actually get, you know, really tumor lysis, you know, hyperkalemia that you have to give Kexalate and you have to really, you know, urgently, emergently act on it. But certainly you need to follow the guidelines. So for the for the venetoclax, there are uh, three risk categories which have been established, low, intermediate, and high, based on the absolute lymphocyte count and the size of the lymph nodes. And so those are actually in the prescribing guidelines for Vintoclax, so they are set criteria. So you really need to follow those, uh, make sure you identify your patient is low, moderate, or intermediate or high risk, and low, intermediate, or high risk, and then manage the patients accordingly. So if you have a low risk patient or an intermediate patient with a good GFR, uh, those patients you don't need to admit and you can manage them outpatient. For patients who are high risk, or if they are intermediate risk with a GFR less than 80, then per guidelines, you should admit them to the hospital for the dose escalation. So, um, so in our practice, we tend to follow these guidelines actually very strictly. Um, and following these guidelines, I think uh, we haven't really had any major issues uh, in terms of you know, tumor lysis syndrome, which could have, which, which went un, undiagnosed or patients in trouble because of TLS risk. Um, and the other risk would be the neutropenia which I tell the patients, so the grade three or four neutropenia rate is about 50% with these regimens. So that's something, obviously, they won't feel much. I mean, they won't feel anything. I mean, so it's just something what we check. And then nine times we have to give them growth factor support like GCSF. And, and it may require folding venetoclax or decreasing the dose of venetoclax. But that's something I preempt the patient so they're not totally surprised when that happens. All right, so we'll uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about MRD assessment. As you know, MRD assessment is kind of a hot topic in all diff all heme malignancies right now. So what are the different methodologies that are used to assess MRD in CLL? And do you typically measure MRD in blood or, or the bone marrow? Yeah, so I think the major, the most commonly used method actually is really flow cytometry. Uh, we just sensitivity of 10 to the power minus 4. And that's what's used um, really routinely in the clinical trials as well as is available at many centers in the country or combined commercial labs. So that's the most commonly used technique. Um, now there is a clonacic assay or actually the adaptive MRD assay or next generation sequencing assay, um, which is now being increasingly used as well. It is actually FDA approved now, not just for CLL, but for ALL and I believe for multiple myeloma as well. Um, and uh, so that's something which is, I guess just coming along. Yeah, we are now investigating that in clinical trials. Um, so I think the data for that is just emerging at this time. So, but the flow remains the standard, I guess, MRD assessment tool, which is used most commonly. In terms of the site, uh, certainly if you do a bone marrow, bone marrow is going to be slightly more sensitive than blood. But 
you know, we and we have done a lot of bone marrow MRD for our clinical trials, but now we are moving away from bone marrow MRD to blood MRD because obviously it's much more convenient for the patient and you can track it serially, you know, uh, closely. So, um, and the clinical trial, for example, CLL14 trial, um, you know, used uh, largely the blood MRD as well. So I think it can be done easily in the blood. I don't think you really need to do bone marrow for that assessment, but certainly uh, I have had many patients where the blood will be zero or MRD negative, but the bone marrow will be a little bit positive. So you can get a better sensitivity detection by going to the bone marrow. All right. And at what time point? I know it depends on treatment. For example, if you are treating a patient with acalabrutinib, you would not be checking MRD, obviously, right? But Correct. if you're treating somebody with like, let's say, venetoclax or venetuzumab or in a rare patient in which you are treating them with FCR, let's say, when do you, what what time point will you check MRD, MRD in those patients? Right. So the, you know, so again, one could argue that you don't need to do MRD. It's too, you know, to do, uh, too complicated. We don't know what to do with the MRD. What are you going to act on the MRD? But for academic discussion, you know, I think the time point which is most important with venetoclax-based therapy will be the time when you're stopping the therapy. For example, venetoclax-based is supposed to be given for one year. So, so I typically check an MRD. Many times, actually, I check it at six months when they're in the middle of the treatment just to see where they are. And then I check it at one year mark um, when they're finishing the treatment. Now, if they are MRD negative at that time, then obviously it's very reassuring to the patient that they are MRD negative. We know that their progression-free survival is going to be better than if they were MRD positive. So it's actually a, it's something which many times the patients are expecting these days because uh, one of the reasons they were going for a time-limited approach is that they want to get MRD negative remission. So they are really focused on that. Um, now the question becomes, if they are MRD positive, what are you going to do? You, you do 12 months of therapy per the guideline, you do a peripheral blood MRD, and it's positive at 0.05. So per the guidelines, I should still stop the therapy. We know that the patient has a high risk of relapse, but I should be just watching it as you would do any other patient. Or should I continue venetoclax longer, or should I do something different? So that's something which is not yet clear, and I think practice pattern is very different. You know, I have tend to continue venetoclax longer than one year, but again, that's not per the guidelines. Um, but we don't know truly the right statement, what to do if someone is still positive MRD at that time. All right. Yeah, it's always, um, you know, same we are facing in myeloma too, that we don't know what to do with the result. And, um, you know, similar to like in other heme malignancies, for example, are there any ongoing clinical trials testing like MRD adapted treatment in CLL or MRD guided treatment? Yeah, so there are some trials coming up. So the one trial actually was already done. It's called the Captivate study, which is a study of Ibrutinib plus venetoclax combination, um, where uh, there was a fixed duration arm where everyone got venetoclax uh, rituximab for uh, venetoclax ibrutinib, sorry, for one year, and there was an MRD arm where they got it for one year, and if they were MRD positive or MRD negative, the treatment was altered based on that. So that trial has been done and actually has been reported some early data. Um, it's the number of patients have become too small in those subgroups and they were not powered for comparisons with like there are 20 patients in one subgroup and 30 patients in one other sub. So just very small numbers. So difficult to make conclusions out of it. But just to answer your point, some of these trials are being done with which are MRD directed uh, treatment. 
All right. Uh, now let's talk about your trial of ibrutinib class combination, you know, that was published in NEJM. Um, can you give us an overview of the trial design and, and what were the key takeaway messages from that trial? Yeah, so that was a trial that was actually an investigator initiated study. We started at Emily Anderson and uh, I spent quite a bit of time on that trial. We enrolled a total of 200 patients at our center uh, for that trial, uh, including 120 frontline patients and 80 relapsed patients. So yeah, so that uh, what the so the design was you get three months of ibrutinib and then you add venetoclax to the mix, and then you continue the doublet for two years, and then based on MRD actually we were if you are still MRD positive you're going to continue for another one year of treatment. So as I mentioned, we treated 120 patients, frontline patients on that study, um, and what we saw and we just uh, reported the data, um, I think at the ASH meeting, the last ASH meeting where updated the data at the ASH meeting, where we saw that there was a durable progression-free survival for these patients, and actually very few relapses have occurred so far, despite we were enriching patients by design for high-risk patients, high-risk genomic patients. So, so, so far, the data looks actually pretty, um, pretty good. Uh, we have submitted an update to the ASH meeting as well, and we were very happy to see that many times when you do a single center study, um, and when it, it when when it taken to a larger multicenter study, uh, that may sometimes your single center study has better results than the large multicenter study. And uh, and I was very pleased and happy to see that the Captivate study, which is a large multi uh, multi uh, institutional international study of the same concept, their data actually look at the closely. Their data is actually better than MD Anderson data, like our single center data. So actually they were slightly better. So I was very pleased to see that, that the data was reconfirmed uh, actually to, in a better way by a large international study. So yeah, so I think that Ibrutinib plus Metoclax study, you know, our goal right now for that study, we, are, we have now a four-year follow-up. Uh, we continue to monitor these patients off therapy, you know, tracking their MRD, tracking the progressions which are occurring um, and, uh, you know, trying to uh, hopefully be one of the first studies to see long-term data with the Ibrutinib plus metoclax combinations, you know, for CLR. So in, this, so in this trial, like at two years, you know, if they are MRD negative, then they will be off treatment, right? Completely correct. after two That's years. Correct. And if they're MRD positive, then this, they are still getting three years. So in both cases, it's kind of time limited. So that, that's really good. And there is no rituximab or obinutuzumab. So it's just Ibrutinib, yeah. it's all oral treatments. Correct. There is no antibody treatment involved. So it's both the oral drugs. That's correct. So, yeah, so that's, uh, and you know, as you probably know, there is a randomized phase three study called CRL GLOW study, which was done, uh, which was using the same actually um, regimen of a Brutinib plus Nidoplax, but they did it for one year. Um, and then they com compared it to Chlorambicillobinituzumab, which is again not the perfect regimen. <laughs> that's what they decided. <laughs> Yeah. So, and not a surprise that uh, Ibrutinib plus Nitoclax, uh, you know, won for PFS over um, Chlorambicillobinituzumab. So I think it is expected based on that, because that was a registration study, that the combination of Ibrutinib plus Nitoclax will uh, will get approved in the United States uh, for, for CLL, you know, maybe some months down the line. So that will be, I think, a very important milestone as well to have a du dual oral time-limited therapy. And I think uh, data from our study from MD Anderson, the Captivate study, and there are some other studies as well of these doublet and triplets ongoing. I think we'll have to see how their long-term data looks because the patients who start asking, right, 
should I use ibrutinib plus nitoclax for patients and the doctors, or should I just do nitoclax or venetuzumab? So I think we, our study and many of the studies, the long-term follow-up will be helpful to see how these data compare to CL14 data, for example, right, with venetoclax uh, or venetuzumab, and what is a better partner for venetoclax? Should I combine with ibrutinib? Or should I combine with obinituzumab that I've been doing for the last few years? I think that will become an important question in the field you know, come next year. Yeah. Um, Ashwin, you had a question? Yeah, the question about, you know, given, you know, in earlier in the podcast, you're talking about toxicity of ibrutinib. Are you worried about the combination of ibrutinib and venetoclax causing the toxicity? Especially, um, you know, arrhythmias that we see with single-agent ibrutinib. No, I'm I'm completely with you, and I'm I am worried about those toxicities. And as you probably know, there are second generation BTK inhibitors. For example, uh, Akala with nitoclax is being studied as well. Uh, Zanubrutinib is with nitoclax is being studied as well. So, so I think you know eventually, if everything goes per plan to say, I think we will have these second generation doublets come along as well. Meaning that Akala when will come, Zanu when will come. And I think at that time, certainly those will become the preferred choices. I think I personally, for a, for a patient, uh, you know, I think I would try if their insurance would approve Akala plus when, once, once the Ibrutinib plus when gets approved, uh, whether they would be uh, able, we would be able to swap it out to say you know, with the second generation, but I don't know how the insurance companies will take that. Um, but I think I do share your concern. I think if I'm going to use Ibrutinib plus Nitoclax, I would really would make sure that the patient has no significant cardiac issues and they're otherwise healthy and whatnot. And, um, or just do nitoclax or nituzumab and not worry about the potential for BTK ibrutinib-based toxicities. Thank you, Dr. Jain. One other question I had, um, given we have so many options in CLL right now, as you were alluding, do you think that the PI3 kinase delta inhibitors are completely obsolete because there was a lot of interest initially with adelisib, but looks like right now no one or none of the clinical trials have been you know, using uh, PI3 kinase delta inhibitors. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, PI3 kinase inhibitor really came with a lot of fanfare early on in CLL. And back, I think it was about 2013 or 2014, um, the, there was a increased uh, immune toxicities, which were recognized, CMV reactivation, PGP uh, infections. So the, the FDA had put a, a hold on the trials and they were reinitiated. And I think that and around the same time, Ibrutinib and Nitoclax were coming along. So, the, you know, PI3 kinase inhibitor certainly became the third line or like after those. And overall, you know, there has not been much interest in PI3 kinase inhibitor development. Um, as you know, there are two PI3 kinase inhibitor approved for CLL, namely Idalalisib and Dobalisib. There's a third one called Umbralisib, which actually I was really um, kind of hopeful for. Um, but early part of this year, this was withdrawn by the company because of uh, some uh, toxicities and whatnot. So, so I think we don't have that option anymore. I would say one thing is that, you know, I, ha I have patients who have failed Ibrutinib or BTK and have failed Nitoclax, so-called double refractory patients we call these days, or double exposed, that they haven't been exposed to both the drugs. And for them, the options kind of become limited, right, in terms of standard of care. Because if you have BTK, you have venetoclax, you can do chemotherapy, but that doesn't really do much or work much. So what are you going to do? So you have to really think of third-generation BTK inhibitor, like pitobrotinib or some kind of a clinical trial with a third-generation BTK inhibitor, 
or you have to go for a CAR T cell therapy, or you have to go for some phase ones looking at some protax and some other kind of phase one CLL drugs. So I think for those patients, I think adalalisib or dovalisib are certainly an options I have used as a bridge, meaning that you put them on those to stabilize the condition until you figure something out for them, like, you know, or transplant or whatever. But you get a decent amount of remission uh, or at least put them for a few months. Uh, hopefully they won't have any toxicities. And then you can figure some clinical trial for them or something for them. So I think they do have a role, but obviously, as you kind of pointed out, uh, I certainly would not use them before you have finished your BTK and BCL2 as your option. All right, just a final couple of questions. So we have, you know, I wanted to discuss briefly about rictus transformation. As you know, this is always a risk of rictus transformation in many indolent lymphomas as well as CLL. Um, so what is the percentage, you know, what is the percentage of patients who develop rictus and are there any particular risk factors that we know of in CLL that puts patient at a high risk of rictus transformation? So, you know, the risk of rictus transformation, so a lot of studies with rictus transformation have been described originally with imaminotherapy, right? So the risk with FCR-based or not, I should say, in the chemotherapy era was about generally about 5% or so. And it really depends on how closely you look. If a patient is progressing, you do a PET scan on everyone, you try to biopsy the highest SCV lymph node, as one of the Italian studies did, their risk of rictus was like 10% or 11%. But if you if a patient is progressing, you say, oh, yeah, it looks like CLL progression. You don't do, do a PET scan. You really just move on with your CLL treatment. Then you may miss a, a pos potential uh, Richter's diagnosis there. So, but fair to say about 5%. Um, and, you know, the, the, some of the risk factors were, again, what, what are the risk, high-risk genetics for CLL? For example, unmutated complex karyotype deletion 17P. Those were notch one mutation. Um, those were thought to be the high risk for, for CLL, for rictus transformation. Now with new, newer therapies, which we're doing these days, overall, I think the risk has come down a bit uh, you know, for, for, uh, for, CL, for rictus transformation, uh, but we still do see them. Uh, I think the risk factors kind of are still the same. And I don't think there's a, something you can just predict upfront that this is the patient who's going to develop rectus transformation because it's still a risk is like, you know, maybe two, 3% and it's difficult to, there's no biomarker. There's nothing I can say on day one that this patient is going to develop rectus transformation two, two years down the line with a brute map, you know. But it's something which, uh, which obviously is a more, um, somewhat of a dreaded complication to say, I would say, you know, um, we don't have good therapies for rectus transformation these days. Um, there are data with chemotherapy, some data with venetoclax, some data we and Mayo Clinic group had reported on checkpoint inhibitors. Um, CAR-T data is kind of emerging. It's a bit fallen. I mean, we don't have much data with CAR-T for Richter's yet. Um, and transplant. I mean, I think if you can get a patient to transplant after achieving a remission, I think that will be the most effective strategy. So Richter's remains a tough disease, uh, you know, in general for patients. Um, and, uh, but, but suddenly, you know, for maybe the trainees who are listening, I think if a patient with CLL, they start having sudden increased worsening of symptoms, uh, sudden growth of a particular lymph node and their LDH is high. Those are the things which really think of Richter's as a, as a reason and do a PET scan and make sure when you do a PET scan, go for the lymph node with the highest SUV. And especially if you have a SUV more than seven, especially more than 10, that's, very likely that it will turn out to be Richter's transformation. Though I have seen many times infections mimic it very well, 
I had a patient with myocardia. I had a patient with HSV lymphadenitis. Uh, we had a patient with, uh, uh, which was turned out to be a, a non-sponsor lung cancer, which was presenting in a way it looked like Richter's transformation or high SUVs on the PET scan. So, and I think an important point is that not all Richter's are DLBCL. Uh, we just had a patient who turned out to be Hodgkin's transformation, which is a very rare transformation of Richter's uh, of CLR. So I think biopsying the highest SUV is very critically important uh, to then decide on the appropriate treatment. Thanks, Dr. Jane. That was fantastic. Um, if you have to predict the frontline treatment for CLL in the next five to 10 years, what would that be? Well, I mean, I think, so one thing I would say is that, you know, I think the, I don't think we'll be doing lifelong BTK inhibitor treatment. I think the goal will be a time-limited therapy for a short duration. You know, whether it's a doublet or a triplet, whether it's for six months or one year, but something of that order. I think, uh, I think time-limited therapy. Um, so that will be, you know, I think probably what how the field will evolve. Uh, it's continuing to evolve. You know, so when I say doublet versus triplet, doublet I mean it's a BCL2 with C20 antibody or a BCL2 with a BTK, or triplet means all three together: BTK, BCL2, and a C20 antibody. Now, eventually, I do think, you know, and given, you know, I think the CAR T how they are evolving, and obviously, you know, the data very well with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with DLBCL, they are now doing trials in like uh, first, first kind of in the first line after debulking with two cycles of our chop. And then if there's some remaining disease, you go with the CAR D. So could it be that eventually for most of these diseases, not just CLL, I'm talking about ALL as well and, and DLBCL, maybe for myeloma as well, that they are being introduced in early lines of therapy, right? So could you envision a case, situation where uh, if you have a safe CAR D or a safe immune therapy, I should say in general, uh, that you can uh, administer early on uh, and then be done with it. And that could potentially, you know, eradicate the disease. So that's kind of is the ultimate future, I guess, right? Where you have a patient and you can just give them a, a single infusion and be done with it. Um, but that's, I think, a bit, we still have to develop good effective CAR-T for CLL first before we move it in the frontline setting. So I think for immediate frontline, maybe the next five years would be short-term, six to 12 months, double triple therapy for patients with CLL. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Jane. This was fantastic. You know, we learned a lot, um, both me and Raj, and we hope even our listeners learn a lot too. And uh, thank you so much for coming. And we hope to have you again for future episodes on ALL. All right. Thank you again. I really enjoyed this discussion and I hope you get some good feedback from your listeners.